For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rich. I am serving as Calvary's interim pastor. Uh, good to be in the house of the Lord again today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hope everyone's coming off a really good Thanksgiving weekend, um, and Christmas is coming. <laughs> I, was, I had several conversations today, and we all concluded the same thing. We can't believe how fast the fall went by. Uh, enjoyed Thanksgiving, and uh, going to enjoy the the season of December as it comes, and I've been just praying for myself that I would, even when things get busy, I would stay slow inside. So we're finishing up the book of Colossians today. We've been in the book of Colossians since the first week of September, studying through this four-chapter New Testament letter to the Colossian church. Last week, we had one verse we looked at. It was Colossians 4.2. I'm going to show it to you again. It had three parts to it, Colossians 4.2 said, be devoted to prayer be watchful, and be thankful. Uh, maybe I didn't... Oh, there it is. Devote, devote yourself to prayer, be watchful, and be thankful. It was three parts, three commands uh, that were convicting and inspiring. And I landed really heavy on this first one, devote yourselves to prayer. And I put out a call to prayer to all of us, to church leaders, to me, to all of us, that we should uh, be soaking ourselves and our church community in prayer and asking for God's hand upon us as we go through this season we're in as a church together. So our leaders responded to that call. Our elders and our staff and our leaders put in place an opportunity for us regularly to come together in prayer. Thursday night, starting this Thursday at 7.15 for an hour, to come to the church and pray, to be together and pray, to ask God's hand to be upon us and to grant his favor upon us, and to create the path we're on for us, to do that together. Now, this will be a time where we just pray. There's not a program. There's not going to be structure, a lot of talk or teaching. We may give a little guidance. We're not even going to just talk about prayer. We're going to pray. So whether you're a beginner at prayer or whether you're experienced at prayer, come here on Thursday night and sit together in a room and seek God's hand a blessing upon us. When believers come together to pray, it's a powerful force in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we want to be right now, asking God to move in us here at Calvary Church. So this Thursday and every Thursday at 7.15, we'll be gathering here just to sit before the Lord and ask him to move on our behalf. The other uh, thing that came out of last week was that word devote stuck in my mind. Uh, you know, sometimes you might think, I'm just giving this all to you, but I'm really giving it to me. Uh, this word devote, I mentioned last week, was the same word that Jesus used in, in Mark when he asked the disciples to devote a boat to him. He was teaching on the shore, and he said, I need a boat right here so that when the crowds get too close and I run out of space, I can step into the boat and move a little bit out into the water and be able to continue to teach. 
He wanted a boat devoted to him. It was right there at the ready all the time. And that's the same word that we find here in this passage in Colossians that said, devote yourself to prayer. Always be ready. Be right there. Be praying. Be right next to Jesus. Well, that picture of devotion stuck in my head all week and this idea of being ready uh, was in my head. And it's interesting because as we continue on in Colossians and finish it up today, this concept comes back. And it hit me again in a hard way this week. And when we get to that part of the scripture, I'll share what happened. We're actually going to read several scriptures today. Last week, we did one, Colossians 4.2. Now we're going to do verse 3 all the way to the end, verse 18. So it's a pretty good chunk to cover. Here's the first part of it. I'm going to read Colossians 4, 3 through 6. So it'll be up here on the screen if you're following along on a device or in your own Bible, Colossians 4, starting in verse 3. So Paul writes, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So we're going to actually take these sentences in reverse order. I'll just show you here what we're going to do. We're going to start at the bottom and work backwards to the top. For me, it makes more sense to go backwards today. So we're going to look at verse 6 where it says, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And then we're going to back up to verse 5 that says, be wise in the way you talk, you act toward outsiders. Then we're going to back up to 3 and 4 where Paul says to pray. So if you're following along with me, we're going in reverse today, starting in verse 6. It says in verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace. Now that sounds really pretty. When I read that, it says, oh, that sounds so nice. Let my conversation be full of grace. Let it be sprinkled with grace. Let it be seasoned with salt. Well, what does that really mean? I want us to stop right now and think about what grace means. Let's get that concept back in our mind before we think about how do I apply this to my words. Grace, what is grace? Grace, we say with a, you know, a quick definition, is grace is unmerited favor. What does that mean? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And to help that really be clear in our minds today, I want to go down a couple levels and then work my way back up to grace. Let's go down a couple levels to judgment. What's judgment? Justice. Judgment is getting what you deserve. It looks something like this. You did a wrong thing. Because you did that wrong thing, this is your punishment. These are your consequences. The just judgment brings a just punishment. Judgment is getting what you deserve. Before God, we don't get judgment. We get mercy. God says, this is what you did. This was wrong. And I'm not going to give you the punishment you deserve for that. Instead of that, I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to pardon you. So judgment is getting what you deserve. Mercy is um, not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. So it would look like this. You did this thing wrong. This is what you deserve. You deserve this punishment. But I'm not going to give that to you. I'm going to give you mercy instead, which forgives you and pardons you and says, I'm not giving you what you deserve. I'm giving you forgiveness instead. And then grace would say, now that I, I've shown you forgiveness, let's go out and I'll buy you an ice cream sundae. I'm giving you what you don't deserve. I'm lavishing even more on you. So Paul is saying here, let 
our conversation be always full of grace. That means my words, the things I say, the conversations I have, how I interact with people. Let's go through those levels again. I'm not going to use my words to express judgment on people, even if they deserve it. I'm not going to use my words to bring punishment. I'm going to use my words to bring mercy. I'm not going to give people what they deserve. It's not going to be force for force, tit for tat. You said this, so I say that. I'm going to get a level above that, and I'm going to use words to express mercy and forgiveness and give people what they, uh, not give people what they deserve. But then I'm going to go up another level from that, and I'm going to let my words be full of grace and lavish on people maybe what they don't even deserve, more than than mercy. I'm going to use my words to speak life. I'm going to use my words to speak grace. I'm going to use my words to build people up, to encourage them. Um, Heidi and I say between us, we'll often start our day and we'll pray and we'll say, God, help us to speak life today in the people we meet. Help us to speak encouragement. May our words lift people up. Paul is saying here in this verse, in this verse, let your conversations lavish people with life and grace. I need the power of the Holy Spirit in me to do that. Because by default, left on my own, in my own flesh, I'm down here somewhere at judgment, keeping what I say even with what people say and do. Once in a while, I can elevate myself to mercy and forgive. But grace, lavishing people with, lavishing people with grace, that comes from the Holy Spirit. What we need to recognize here, as Paul is saying this, is he's turning us to look outside. We should speak this way with each other, right? We should, with each other in this room, and when we're together as Calvary Church, we should not speak judgment toward each other. We should not speak condemnation. We should speak mercy. We should speak forgiveness. But we should get up to that level of grace and lavish each other with encouragement and love and life. But that's not actually who Paul is talking to here. In this context, if we look at it, and as we go along, we're going to see that Paul is trying to turn our eyes outside. He's trying to make us think about people who don't know Jesus yet, who live outside the world of faith, who live outside the walls of the church. What he's saying to us is, out there, let your conversation be full of grace. In here, you might think it's easier. Out there, you might think it's harder. Picture yourself now in your workplace. Picture yourself in your neighborhood. Picture yourself with your family. And picture yourself speaking words of grace and life and encouragement and love. And I think the implication here as we read this and we look at it is if you do that, people are going to start paying attention and say, why are her words so kind? Why are his words so encouraging all the time? Why are why are uh, her words so salty? What is it about him that seems so different? When we lavish people with words of grace, they're going to wonder why, because that's not the way our world operates. Our world operates often more on the, you did this, I'll do that to you level, not up here at the level of grace that God calls us to. And Paul writes that that'll be like salt. It'll be like seasoning our words with salt. You probably have heard this, it's been said a lot, and I think it's kind of funny, and it's true, that salt makes people thirsty. So our words, our conversation, should make people thirsty. 
It should make people want to drink. Hey, I want, I want some of what you have. What is it that you have that's so different? Let's season our conversation with salt. Not only what we say, but who we are. Jesus said, we're salt. Not just our words, but we ourselves are salt. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus said this. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the salt of the earth. If you are salt, salt should come out your mouth. If you are salt, spread that, Jesus says. If you're not being salty, you're not being useful. And there's an image here that all of Jesus' hearers would have recognized that we probably don't because we go to the grocery store and buy our salt in a container. But Jesus, when he said these words, you are the salt of the earth, he was at the Sea of Galilee, probably in or near the town of Magdala. The only time we hear about the town of Magdala is when we hear Mary Magdalene. She's Mary from Magdala. Magdala was a fishing village. Fishermen knew all about salt. Salt was a preservative, and salt was used for seasoning. But it probably its most important use was as a preservative. There was no refrigeration in Jesus' day. So if you caught a load of fish, you either had to eat them all right away or you had to figure out a way to preserve them because there was no refrigerator to throw them in, no freezer to store them in. Bacteria grows best in a moist environment. So the best way to slow down the decay of a fish is to dry it. When it's dry, it won't decay quite as quickly. So when the fishermen would bring their fish into shore, one of the first things they would do is rub it with salt heavy salt, and that salt would dry the fish out so that it wouldn't decay as quickly. And then they would put them in drying towers, drying racks, drying bins, in the sun to get as much moisture out of those fish as they could so the fish would last as long as possible to get them to market and sell them to other people. So when Jesus said to this crowd at the Sea of Galilee, you are the salt of the earth, their minds went immediately to how they use salt. They use salt to preserve those fish. In our context, we say, if I'm a salty person in my conversation, I want to preserve life. I don't want to speak decay. I want to say things that are going to bring life to you and preserve your life. That's what the picture is here. They didn't run to the grocery store and grab a can of salt. Do you know where their salt came from? It came from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is either the saltiest or one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet. And along its, all along its shorelines, there were salt buildup, salt bricks, salt cakes, salt formations. So people would harvest those salt blocks and, and sell them around. So the fishermen in Magdala and the, at the Sea of Galilee, in order to preserve their fish, they had to get their salt blocks from the Dead Sea, which was 65 miles away. It was 65 miles south of where Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So they would bring these blocks of salt in. Fishermen would have these blocks of salt, which was salt from the Dead Sea mixed with impurities, maybe a little sand, a little something that's not salt, all crystallized in this block with salt. And what the fishermen would do is they would rub the block to get the salt to fall off. Salt was a little softer than the impurities. So as they rubbed it, as they tapped it, as they banged it, the salt would fall off and they would rub the fish with the salt from these blocks. If you keep knocking the salt off the block, salt off the block, salt off the block, what you're left with eventually is not salt. It's the impurities, it's the sand and and the shells or whatever else is in there that's not salt. So it would get to the point 
where that block would now be useless, and they would just throw it in the alleyways of the town of Magdala, where people would walk on it, it would crunch into, like, pavement. This is the picture Jesus is giving here when he says, you're the salt of the earth. Be salty. Once the salt loses its saltiness, throw it away. It's useless. All it's good for is trampling underfoot, like that stuff over there in the alleyway. This was a powerful picture for Jesus' listeners. And what it says to us today is, I am salt, you are salt. We have an important role to play in this world to bring life, the gospel message, preserve, and season. Why do we do this? It says here, oh, wrong, I have the wrong one up here. It said in our passage, um, so that you may know how to answer. Let your uh, conversation be full of grace. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer people. First Peter says something similar. First Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is where that, that word devoted and be ready came back to me this week. The same idea here in this, in this verse 15, to be ready, to be devoted. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be ready. Always be prepared. Be devoted, this is saying. It's like having that boat right there. Be ready to step into it. Always have it devoted to you. What is it that we're supposed to have devoted to us? A ready answer for anyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I failed here this week. I failed here. I had this picture in my mind about being ready. I always feel like I have words. And I was not ready when I was asked a question this week that really mattered. I was with some friends, and one of the friends said to me, so tell me, you believe that only people who trust or believe in Jesus are going to heaven? Yes, I do. So what you're, what you're saying is that only Christians go to heaven. Muslims don't, Jews don't, only Christians. And there was something about the question, the way it was asked, it bothered me. I, I couldn't quite get my head around it. I wasn't ready. And I, I knew there was something in the way the question was framed that was changing the way we looked at this conversation. And I gave an answer. I don't even remember what it was. I wasn't satisfied with the answer. Uh, as I gave it. And then later, Heidi and I were driving home in the car, and we were talking about this conversation. And I realized, first of all, I realized what it was about the question that bothered me. The way it was asked made it sound like you go to heaven because you're a Christian, and you don't go to heaven if you're not a Christian. That's not the truth. The truth is, Jesus calls all of us to him. And the Bible says, to all who received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. Everybody's called. Every, he came to save everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. If you respond to Jesus, if you come to him, if you ask his forgiveness, Christian, Muslim, Jew, doesn't make any difference. If I come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and bow the knee to him, I'll be saved. If I believe in my heart, that God raised him from the dead and confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I'll be saved. That offer is given to everyone.
But the way the question was asked, it made it sound like only Christians go to heaven. Who goes to heaven? People who have received the gift of forgiveness and mercy and grace and love from Jesus. And as we talked about it, I felt like, oh, I had an answer. I had a better answer, but I wasn't ready. An opportunity came, and I missed it. And you can't go back sometimes and get those opportunities back. Heidi and I were like, how do we, how do we get that opportunity back? How do we try that again? But all we could do is just say, God, we missed it. I just think I missed it. I wasn't ready, and I didn't give as good an answer as I could have. I should have done better than that, and so I'm sorry. But God, if you would be so gracious to give another opportunity, I've got an answer ready. But that's not what this passage says. It doesn't say, be ready sometime, be ready later. It says, be ready now to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So when do you answer? When do you answer? It's when someone asks you a question. That's when I answer when someone asks me a question. When I answer that someone hasn't asked me yet, they're not interested. But when they ask me and I answer, they're looking for what I have to say as an answer. Why would someone ask me? Why would someone ask me about the hope I have? What would even make them think about it? Well, if my words are full of grace and seasoned with salt, it might make them wonder where all that's coming from, and they might ask me about it. But Paul also goes on to say, actually, we were working our way backwards through this, right before verse 6, where he said, let your conversation be full of grace, let it be seasoned with salt. He said, watch your behavior. I actually should have put this back up here so we could see it again, but I'll go back to it in my notes and read it. Verse 5 said, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So maybe there's something in the way I act that would make people ask. Maybe how I conduct myself, how I make decisions, how I interact with other people, things I do or don't do. Maybe coming alongside someone to help when I wasn't required to. Maybe going out of my way to be a helpful person or a kind person or showing generosity. Add that to my words. My actions and my words together might make someone say, what is it about that guy that's different? And they might want to know. That's what Paul's saying to watch our behaviors, to be ready. I'm going to add verse 16 to 1 Peter 3.15. 15 said, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. What we say... And what we do matters. And again, those come from a place in here. When God has filled my heart with love, I can love. When Jesus has forgiven me, I can forgive. When he shows me grace that I don't deserve, I can show grace to other people if they don't deserve it. What God has filled me with can overflow into other people. And I can be salt of the earth. I can be gracious. I don't need everything to be made even and right. I don't need to get justice on my own. I don't need revenge. I can let God take care of all of that big picture stuff and love people the way he loved me. That's what this passage is saying. Outside of this room, yes, we want to do it in here, but there are so many people outside of the family of God, outside of knowing who Jesus is, who live in this crazy, hopeless world 
And what are they hoping? What are they putting their faith in? They don't know. They don't know. Sometimes people just do crazy things because they're so hungry inside. And we have salt we can give them. We have light we can give them. We have hope. We're going next week to start into December. And for December, we're going to follow the four Sundays of of Advent. And the four topics, the four candles, the four Sundays of Advent are um, hope, peace, joy, and love. So next Sunday is hope. We're going to talk about hope and Christmas hope and why we have hope and who is our hope. And as we come to this place next week to gather and remember Jesus' birth, we come here with hope in our hearts. But there are a lot of people you know in your life that don't have hope. They don't know hope. They don't know what to hope in. Who do they put their hope in? Where is their hope? What is the hope of this world? Who is the light of this world? It's Jesus. So this week, when you're in conversations with people, and you're encountering the people in your circle and in your lives, keep in the back of your mind, where is this person's hope? Do they know the hope that I have? Can I make some inroad with them? Can I be a little salty in my conversation? Maybe can I invite them to church sometime during the month of December to hear about hope and peace and joy and love and what the message of Christmas is? We've got a job to do, friends. And um, uh, Heidi and I have been praying to do it better. I want to do it better. I want to do a better job of not just being a nice person in my world, but being a person who offers hope and life and love and joy and peace and draws people to Jesus. Paul started this section we're reading with probably the most important part of it. I'm going back in my notes to Colossians 4, 3 through 6. He says in 3 and 4, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains and pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Maybe being ready to give an answer starts with prayer. Maybe if I had been praying, God, I'm going to be with some friends tonight. Open an opportunity for me to speak life to them, to represent you well, not to beat everybody over the head, but to just express love and joy and hope and where my hope comes from. God, give me an opportunity. Help me to watch for it. And then when the opportunity comes, Holy Spirit, give me the words. Help me to proclaim it clearly like Paul is saying here, to have an answer ready. Maybe being prepared starts with prayer. Maybe that's stepping into that boat. We're going to spend a little bit of time praying this morning. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion together. And before we take the bread in the cup, I'm going to just lead us through some time of prayer. Uh, I think we just need to be praying more. I think I need to be praying more. And uh, so where we are, as I said, we're trying to do that. Uh, Pray for opportunities. Pray for an open door. Pray for clarity when I speak. The ability to speak with grace and not judgment the ability to be salty in my words and in my life, that people would notice, not me, but what is it about me? What can I I do to have that peace, that hope, that love, that joy? All right, I'm just going to read the next section in Colossians. It's a big chunk. It wraps up the book. It wraps up the letter. I don't have it here for you because it's a lot of text. So if you want to follow along, Um, I'm going to start in verse 7, chapter 4. If you want to just listen, just listen. These are Paul's 
Closing comments. Uh, he writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. By the way, I should have said, if you, if you hear anything at all, just hear the list of names, the number of people Paul is mentioning here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a, a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and all those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you are... that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. And that concludes the book. Now, we could have spent a week just on that. There are lessons in that closing that we could pull out. But I wanted to finish the book today. I wanted to read through that because I'm a little OCD, and I couldn't not finish. I couldn't not read that. But what do we get from that today? As I was reading this, one thought came to mind, one theme, that why I said to you, listen to the number of names. This is community. Paul is not doing this himself. We refer to Paul and say, Paul wrote the letter of Colossians. Paul wrote this letter. Paul did this. Paul did that. He didn't do anything by himself. He did it in community. He had a group of people he was working with. He had people he was training up. He had people who encouraged him. When he sent the letter to the church, it wasn't to an individual. It was to be read to the whole church and then passed on to another church and read to the whole church. We often read our Bible like it's just for me. But it was written in the context of community, that God calls us to do this together. That means I need you, and you need me, and you need each other, and we walk through this journey of faith together. That's what communion is about, too. We're going to observe communion in just a few moments. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we're remembering that Jesus' body went to the cross, that his blood was spilled for me. That's what I think of at at communion. I thank Jesus for forgiving me. I thank him for resurrection. I thank him for life. I thank him for the blood that this cup represents. But I don't take communion home alone. I don't sit at my dining room table and break open a little juice and a little bread and have communion alone. Where do we receive communion? In community. Where did Jesus distribute it? In community, at a table with his friends. We do this together because we remember together that Jesus died for us. We remember together that his blood washes away our sins. We remember together that his body was broken. And we move together as a community under his blood and under his name. I think that's the point of the last part of that book of Colossians. If we could just pull one thing out today, it says, community. Paul was doing it in community. He was writing to Colossians who were doing it in community. And we do this faith journey in life in community. So if you didn't pick up one of these cups for communion and you need one, raise your hand, please, 
and we'll have someone bring you one. What we're going to do next is we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. While we're doing that, the worship team can come up and get themselves set in place. I'm going to lead you a little bit in prayer, but I'm mostly going to leave space for you to pray in your seat, you and Jesus, from your heart, in your mind, to connect with him. We're going to do this together as we pray individually around the room. And then we'll take the bread and the cup together. I'm just giving a, a moment for the uh, ushers to get our, or elders to get our communion cups around to people who need them. So as you hold these elements in your hand, I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and sit quietly before the Lord. And as I said, I'll give you a little bit of leadership, a little bit of direction in praying, but this is mostly just time for you and Jesus to sit together. You know, if your life goes like mine, it gets so busy day to day that it's easy to spend quick time with Jesus, fast time. But to have a pocket of quiet where you can just sit before him and let him speak to you and hear his voice uh, might be easier to do right now. So take this, take this time as a gift. And you might start with something like this. You might just tell God something about himself. A little bit of praise or admiration or adoration. God, you're, you're amazing. Jesus, you're wonderful. You're eternal. You're full of grace. This is what you mean to me. Just take a, a moment or two and remind God and remind yourself of who he is to you. And as you do that, remember who you are before him. Jesus, I'm, I'm in need of grace and forgiveness. I know I'm your son. I know I'm your daughter. I'm a child of the Most High God. But here's where I blew it this week, and I need you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. Here's what I said that was hurtful. Here's what I thought that was impure. Here's what I did that was not right. And be assured of this as you hold this cup in your hand. That 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus said, Everyone who comes to me, anyone who comes to me, I will not send away. And now thank him. Thank him for his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his blood. Thank him for some blessing you've recognized in your life this past week. Thank him for someone you love who's dear to you. Thank him for some movement of his hand that you've seen. 
And now we ask. There's something you need to ask of him. He says, ask me. Come to me. Bring your prayers and petitions with this thanksgiving. And I'll hear you. So we ask, Lord, on behalf of Calvary Church that you would move in us. We ask, Lord, on behalf of this community that you would lead us forward, that you would keep us unified, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us be people who are salty, that our conversations would be full of grace, that our words would be seasoned with salt. Help us to be light and to show hope to the people in our world. Give our leaders wisdom and hearts that seek and follow you. Call us, Lord, to your side. We are yours. If there's something you need to personally ask of the Lord, do that now. While you're sitting in this quiet place of prayer, you take your communion cup and tear off the top piece that reveals the bread. And as you hold it in your hand, I'll read these words from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you think of him and you thank him and you remember him, let's take this bread together. Remove the foil from the the cup of juice, please. It says this as I continue on in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, as we drink this cup, we remember what you did for us on the cross. We remember your spilled blood. We remember your mercy and your grace and how you pardoned us from judgment. And we thank you. We drink this cup together and we remember you, Jesus. The last part of this passage says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember you, Lord, with grateful hearts. Amen.